Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. It's a pleasure to be here again this evening, and... uh... Back into the book of Romans, we are continuing our study in the book of Romans on grasping the gospel. And this evening, we're going to be looking at three chapters in the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11. And so if you have uh, the out of the bulletin, you should have uh, the outline there, and we should be able to go through that uh, as we get going. So uh, Romans chapter uh, 9 through chapter 11. And uh, we'll just get started here, and then um, we'll see how things go. Uh, The first thing I wanted to say is that we're going to try to cover three chapters here, and and, uh, they are full chapters. And so we can't really take these texts and then go through and and give a detailed exposition of them because because of just the time constraints. In addition to being a lot of material, the um, there are some really uh, thorny theological passages and verses in this text. And the objective this evening is not to try to solve all of those. I hope to be able to give you a framework that will help you uh, as you seek to how to approach this. Um, so I, what I'd like to do, instead of reading just one text, I'd like to read through a series of verses here that we find. So go ahead and open up your Bibles. And we'll start here in Romans chapter 9, and then I'll just read a few of these verses to give you a sense for the flow of Paul's argument here. Uh, Beginning in chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to to the flesh. Then verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has taken none effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Paul is dealing here in these chapters with the fate of Israel and the reality that in his day, as in our day, the majority of Jewish people did not receive or believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Certainly there were many but the majority rejected the gospel, and Paul is having to deal with that question, since as we know, he said in chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God into salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So the accusation or the challenge that, that the gospel is somehow defective because it didn't reach God's chosen people is a charge that Paul has to deal with. Go down to verse 16 in chapter 9, and one thing Paul is going to show us is that that the gospel is by grace. So he says, So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Then go to chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. And if you go to chapter 10, verse 12, verses 12 and 13, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then just a few verses in chapter 11, 
uh, verse 1a, it says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Then to verse 5, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And then in verse 32, he says, For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. And then Paul goes into a doxology for the glory of God. Let's pray. Dear Father, as we look at these passages and the the variety, in a sense, of the material here and the difficult aspects of the theological teaching, I pray, Lord, that you'd give us clarity as we look at this. I pray that we would have an understanding of the overall uh, intent of the Apostle Paul and of the Holy Spirit as this is presented to us. And may we get the teaching that will be a blessing and an encouragement to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure. There we go. All right. So we're in Lesson 6, and Lesson 6 deals with the rejection of of the gospel and the glory of God. The um, I now we're doing these three chapters. You need to buckle your seatbelts, okay? Uh, there are a couple reasons for that. Number one, there's a lot of material here. We're going to go fast, but also there are a lot of bumps in here as well. So if you like four wheeling, this is the lesson for you. Well, where are we in the outline of Romans? Well, just to do a little bit of review, we started with an introduction. And that introduction uh, pointed out Paul's ministry of the gospel to the believers. Then we saw that the gospel reveals the only way to be right with a righteous God. Third, the gospel secures to us all the blessings of reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. And that leads us to this section here in these three uh, chapters. The gospel cannot fail to fulfill God's divine plan. Paul is making the point here that the gospel is not only a blessing because it brings us salvation, but it is also the culmination, as it were. It is, the, it is the explanation of what God is doing in the whole world, whether among his people Israel or among all the other nations. And so it's essentially important to understand what's going on in these chapters. Now, these chapters are often described or labeled as a kind of parenthesis. That is, Paul is talking about the gospel, but he's got to stop talking about the gospel for a minute so that he can explain this whole problem of why the Jewish people had not received, in the, in, the, in the main, had not received the gospel. And whereas that certainly is true, I do believe that that, that, that given Paul's emphasis on the Jew and the Greek, Paul's emphasis on, on, on the, the Jewish people and the Gentile peoples, and, and his repeated dealing with that, in the different sections of the book to me indicate that this is an essential part of our understanding of the gospel message. It's not just a by the way. It's something that's really important to understand. God has a plan and he's working his plan. And sometimes it doesn't seem like parts of the plan are going so well. Now that's true in our lives as well. Parts of what God is doing in our lives or would do through us sometimes don't seem to be going that well, but it's really important to understand that God is always on, right on schedule in his plan. See, there's a problem, and that's one of the greatest discouragements in preaching the gospel, is its rejection by people who know the truth. Isn't that the case? Isn't it discouraged when you talk to somebody about the gospel and they don't want to hear it? Or if they do hear it, they don't want to believe it? How many of us have unsaved loved ones, and we desire for them to be saved, and yet still praying, because many times there is a rejection. Sometimes the rejection is such that 
that there is even a rejection of you as a believer, right? Sometimes even, even as a family member, there is a rift in the family. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. And what he meant by that was people of their own families would be at odds over this, over this gospel. Or perhaps even worse for believers is when, when someone who has grown up with the gospel, someone who has been in a Bible-preaching church and in a, in a good, godly Christian school, and, and, and grows up and then completely rejects all of the things of God. How discouraging that can be for a parent or for a teacher or for, for a pastor. When people reject the gospel, and so it's, it's tempting for us to get discouraged and to believe that there's something wrong with the gospel when people reject it. But what we see in, these, in, these passage, in this passage is a, a significant theological truth Human unbelief does not invalidate the gospel, but rather confirms it. That's Paul's point here. The unbelief of Israel doesn't invalidate the gospel. It just helps us understand the key aspects of the gospel and helps us understand what God's plan is uh, throughout the ages. So how should we respond? We must trust the power of goodness and wisdom of God, even when people reject and resist our message. That's the fundamental takeaway, I believe, from this passage. That there's nothing wrong with the gospel, there's nothing wrong with God's working, and we just need to trust both his power, goodness, and wisdom that he is accomplishing uh, his will in this world, and we must then respond in obedience. So, first of all, I want to get us get a theological perspective here. If you, if, you, um, if you look at these chapters, there really are three main ideas in each of the three chapters. Okay? Chapter 9 is explaining that because salvation was always by grace, it was never owed to all of the physical descendants of Abraham or all of the physical descendants of Jacob. And therefore, the rejection of the gospel by um, the majority of the people was in no way a failure of God's promises because the promises of God were always based on grace. So Paul goes on in chapter 9 to defend um, God's justice and his grace as uh, he deals with the nation of Israel. And then in chapter 10, Paul goes on to demonstrate that the rejection of the gospel by Israel was due to the fact that they were seeking to obtain the righteousness of God through the law, through the works of the law, instead of the hearing of faith. And that the Gentiles, who were not striving to keep the law of God, nevertheless obtained the righteousness of the law of God because they received Christ by faith. And he goes on to show that Christ was preached to the whole Jewish nation. And yet, up till that point, um, a majority had rejected him. So that the rejection of the gospel by people is in the face of the preaching of the gospel and is, in fact, a refusal to, to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 11, Paul comes back around dealing with Israel and says, but some have been saved, a remnant according to the election of grace, and one day... They will all be saved. The whole nation will come to faith in Christ. And he concludes with this wonderful doxology about the wisdom of God. So that's the flow here. But in order to deal with some of these questions, we have to get a theological perspective. Chapter 9 has a really strong emphasis on the grace of God and the sovereign choice of God. Chapter 10 has a very strong emphasis on the gospel preaching 
in chapter 11 has a very strong emphasis on the glory of God. And I'm going to argue that all of those things are essential for us to really grasp and benefit from the gospel. We can't trim one down to make it fit together with our ideas from other passages. So we have to look at all of these together and we have to let each one stand on its own two feet. So what's the theological perspective we need to have? Well, the first point I want to make about theology, when you get into some of these difficult passages, like in Romans chapter 9, is that scripture is primary, theology is secondary. Theology is important. Theology is how we think about what God has revealed and kind of put it together, understand it, and make application of it. Theology is essential. You can't live without practicing theology. But our theology is derived from the Bible. The Bible is the source of authority. And anytime my theology doesn't square in any point with what the Bible actually teaches, I have to adjust my theology. I can't adjust the Bible. So foundationally, we want to let the text say what it says in its context. Second point, there are constructive tensions in theology. There are constructive tensions in theology. What do I mean by constructive tension? I mean something like a violin string. A violin string is under tension. It has to be in order to make music. It has to be anchored at one end and anchored at another end and cranked down to just the right tension in order to produce the sound that, that uh, it is supposed to produce. Now, there is a sense in which that's analogous to what happens in uh, the study of theology sometimes. Let's look at a constructive tension here in the theology of salvation. The first point is that salvation is by grace. And when we, grace basically just means favor, but in the context of salvation, in the context of justification, we know it means un completely undeserved, unmerited favor. Grace is something that God extends because of who God is, not because of who you are. Grace is something that God extends because of what he's doing, not because of what you were doing. I remember uh, a couple weeks before my wife and I got saved, we were invited to go to church, a Bible-preaching church, and we got there, and a dear lady came up to us after the service in the parking lot and says, Do you know the Lord? And I had this really, really sharp answer. I was ready. I said, We're working on it. Yeah, she knew immediately I was lost. Because we weren't working on anything. God was working on us, right? He was chasing us down. We were running away. We thought we were coming to God. We were running away from God. Salvation is totally by grace. Therefore, if you're saved, you're no better than anybody else. You're no different from anybody else. There was no reason you ought to be saved and someone else ought to not be saved. Even your believing, you can't take credit for believing. Well, I, you know, I was smart. I knew I was good for me and I got saved. I got to tell you, that wasn't my testimony. I was in darkness till God saved me. The light came on. Right? I mean, salvation is by the grace of God. Now, that's a really, really important anchor point. You can't diminish that point. You can't say, well, I don't understand how that fits in together with man's responsibility. Well, tough. <laughs> don't disbelieve it because you can't make it work in your system. It is true. But also, salvation is through faith, right? Salvation is through faith. It is through the exercise of human faith. God says, believe and be saved. He actually puts a condition on salvation. It's believing. Now, how is it if salvation is totally by grace, then God puts a condition on it that's something you have to do? 
Well, people have spent a lot of time in different kinds of theological systems, come up with different answers about how those two fit together. In Ephesians, it says very clearly, we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we have to understand that Paul doesn't see a conflict between grace and faith. He says, therefore, justification is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. Remember in chapter 4, he was saying Abraham was justified by faith, and therefore God fulfilled his promise, right? It, the, the blessing came from promise, so the only way to receive a promise is to believe it and receive it. If you work for it, it's no longer based on promise, it's based on law. And his point was that faith and grace go hand in hand. You can't have grace without faith. So there isn't a real conflict between grace and faith. However, in theological systems, sometimes there is a tension between those two. If someone starts out and says, okay, I believe in grace, salvation is totally by grace, it has nothing to do with you. God, God chooses you be, just because of his sovereign grace. And based on that, then, God starts working in your life. And since God can never fail, he's certainly going to, that grace is certainly one day going to bring you to Christ. And then since you can't believe because you're a sinner and born in sin and dead in trespasses and sin, therefore, therefore, um, he actually regenerates your soul and then causes belief to happen in you. So belief is something that you do, but it's really something that God works in you. And so you go down logical step by step by step, and you get to the place where faith is really some, almost something that God is doing, and there, is, there seems to be no, no responsibility on your part. Now, I'm not saying that folks who take that view believe that. That would be a Calvinistic view. I'm not saying they believe that. I think they feel like they've got it sorted. I'm just saying that there is a tension there. And then you might say, okay, well, there are other groups of people that they want to start with the gospel. And the gospel says, believe whosoever believes shall be saved, right? Whosoever will may come. And the gospel invitation is open to all, right? We preach the gospel to all. Well, if the gospel invitation is open to all, then everyone must have the ability to believe. And if everyone has the ability to believe, then if you're saved, it's because you believed. And if you're not saved, it's because you don't believe. You say, well, what, does the, what about this idea that God chooses some? Well, he must choose based on who believes. Because obviously... You, you have to be able to believe. You have to have the free will to believe. And so what happens is there is a tendency then in emphasizing faith to minimize the grace side of it. The difference now between me and the lost person is what I did and what they didn't do. And again, I'm not saying that's a wrong perspective. Starting out with the, with the gospel of God and the, and the, um, and, and, and the, um, the free offer of salvation and the appeal to people to be saved, that's a biblical emphasis, isn't it? My point is that the Bible doesn't, sit here, doesn't spend a lot of time trying to say, okay, exactly how do these two things work together? The Bible, when it's talking about faith, is talking 100% about faith. And when it's talking about grace, it's talking about 100% about grace. And it's not trying to work out all the little rough edges that we get in our minds when we're trying to sort it out. That's why even though two concepts like grace, grace and faith are perfectly compatible biblically, sometimes in our theological system it causes problems, right? And so I want to emphasize that because you're going to find very strong statements on the grace side, particularly in chapter 9. You're going to find very strong statements on the faith side, particularly in chapter 10. Which one is true? They're both true. 
They're both true. Whether I can get it sorted all together or not is not the point. The point is I believe it and act on it. I need to have both side, ends of the string anchored firmly or else it will sound, uh, my gospel music will be out of tune. And then the third thing is, this is similar but a little bit different, that there are mysteries in theology. There are mysteries in theology. Now, mystery, I don't mean like a murder mystery, and, and I don't mean like mysterious, right? What is a mystery? Well, a mystery, first of all, a, a mystery is not something that's a contradiction. A mystery is not a contradiction. A contradiction is something that is both true and not true at the same time, in the same way. If you said Jesus is God and Jesus is not God, that would be a contradiction. However, you say that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, that's a mystery because we don't know how he can be 100% God and 100% man. We don't understand how that works. How can you be 100% one and 100% the other? So mysteries are not contradictions, but mysteries are beyond our capacity to fully understand. And there are mysteries like that. The Trinity is one of those mysteries. It's not a contradiction. It is a mystery. It is, it is, there is one God in three, existing in three persons. Right? Um, uh, eternally, his being, it, but he's in three persons. And each person is God, and yet he, there is only one God. And you're saying, well, I can't understand that. I can't understand that either. But do you want to worship a God that is no smarter than you are? Think of it. Do you want to worship a God that you could fully understand? It's, it's, it's evident that there are things in theology that are mysterious. And one of these mysteries, I believe, is represented in three scriptural truths that really applies to this idea of salvation um, by grace through faith. First of all, God is good. God is good. God is always good. He's just. He's righteous. He loves what's good. He hates what's evil. He always wants what's good. God is good. What percent? A hundred percent. However, God is also sovereign. What do we mean by sovereign? He can do anything he wants, right? And he is doing what he wants. God can do anything. So if God wants to save somebody, he can save them. Now, by the way, that's really encouraging. Because that means he can keep me. <laughs> Despite anything and everything the devil can throw at me, I'm safe in the hands of Jesus, because he is sovereign. He is working his perfect plan out in my life. But a third point is, there is evil in the world. There's evil, and it's really evil. It's not just sort of like pretend evil, or imaginary evil, or not really evil if you just look at it the right way. It's real, out and out, full bore, full-throated evil. Okay? And that exists in the world. And, and you know, anybody has taken philosophy 101 knows what's coming. Well, if God is all good and if God is all sovereign, why is there evil in the world? Now, any two of those things you can hold on to. You can say God is good and God is sovereign. But if God is fully good and fully sovereign, then why is there evil in the world? Or you could say, well, God is fully sovereign, but there's evil in the world. Well, you could believe that if you thought that, well, God was okay with evil. Or you can say God is good and there's evil in the world. Why do bad things happen to good people, is the idea. And in that case, God is good and there's evil, but he just can't stop it all. But the Bible won't let you do that. won't let you take any of those positions. God is good. God is sovereign. There's evil in the world. 
So when we run into things like, why is it that some people aren't saved? Well, they didn't believe. Well, God, couldn't God have saved them? Don't you see what I'm saying? And that happens when we go to pray, right? You go to pray and it's like, okay, well, don't you want to save this person? And we struggle. We have to maintain our belief in everything that, God, that the Bible teaches about God and not just the parts that fit our limited theological understanding. Okay, I'm in deep trouble. That's the introduction. Okay. Now, I, 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 there is value in that because I think as you go through and read these pas- this passage, these three chapters, if you keep those ideas in mind, then you won't go off in a ditch while you're trying to sort through it. Now I'd like to talk about what the emphasis of each of these uh, sections is. And I start out with just the, um, uh, the passage, chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. From the human perspective, from the human perspective, the rejection of the gospel by some is a profound tragedy. It's a tragedy when people don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is talking about his countrymen, Israelites, but it's also true of anyone. Anyone who rejects the gospel, it is a profound tragedy. Notice what Paul says here. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Paul is actually saying that he could wish himself damned to hell for the sake of the salvation of his countrymen. What an incredible statement. Then it's not just because of who they are. It's not just for them, although I believe he had a heart for them. But it's who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises. In other words, he's really burdened for them because they're God's people, because they're God's nation. And it's really important to him that they be saved. Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. So here's Paul, and he's saying, this is like a big deal. I'm just grieved to the depths of my soul. Now, what does that say about God? It says something about Paul, but it also says something about God. I would argue that God sincerely and fervently desires people to be saved. You're saying, well, where do you get that about God? Well, you go back. Notice what Paul is saying. This is not, this is not just an emotion. Well, notice how Paul prefaces what he's going to say. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience is bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> right? Now, Paul's an apostle. He's writing under inspiration. But if there's any doubt in our minds as to whether he's using some kind of a hyperbole as a figure of speech, kind of just saying, uh, exaggerating, he puts that to rest immediately. He is sober and, and, and serious when he's saying this, right? I really believe this, and I say the truth in Christ. You say, okay, well, that's just Paul. Well, it's not just Paul. Right? Because notice Paul's burden is that because these are God's people. God chose them. God loved them. God entered a relationship with them. God sent his son to them. You know, so this isn't a sentiment that just comes out of Paul's heart and is autonomous and doesn't come from God. This is God's attitude. 
By the way, if God didn't love sinners, why did, he, why did he send his son to die on the cross for sinners? Right? Christ was a curse from God. <laughs> right? He was a curse from God for the sake of sinners. So God really does care. Notice what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 21. He's quoting Isaiah. He says, but to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You see the picture? Here's God for centuries just holding his hands out saying, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. God desired them to come back and God desires people to be saved. I think any theological system that denies that runs into difficulty. And you know what? So should we. <laughs> so should we. We should care. We should care about our co-workers and care about our neighbors. Right? Care, care about our relatives. Okay, so that's the first point. The second point is that the rejection of the gospel by some confirms the sal- that salvation is by grace. Now we're getting into the meat of chapter 9. Notice verse 6. This is a key turning point verse. I read it at the beginning. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. What's the point? He's saying, look, God, these people have the promises of, they had the promises of God. This nation was God's chosen nation. God loved them. God made promises to them. He made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to the nation. And so, but he says, but Paul says, it's not as though those promises failed. The rejection of the gospel by national Israel was not an indication of the failure of God's promises because the promises were never given to a uh, were never given uh, with the idea that um, that that everyone of the physical descendants would be saved. The salvation was always based on the grace of God, and Paul goes on to show that he shows well there was Isaac. I'm sorry, there was I, um, there was Isaac, and there was Ishmael. And Isaac received the promise. And then there was Jacob and Esau. And Jacob received the promise. And he goes on to demonstrate that even Moses, when he was on the mountain, even Moses, when he was going to see the glory of God, God made sure to tell him, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. Not even Moses earned the right to see God. Moses was who he was and where he was because of God's grace. And you put in contrast to him, Pharaoh. God said, I have raised you up. You have to look at the whole history of Pharaoh and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and that is a whole detailed discussion. But the point is that God God did something for Moses. (laughs) He blessed Moses. Was Moses any better as a human being than Pharaoh was? You see, the point is that, that blessing salvation is solely by what? The grace of God. It's solely by the grace of God. What's the key teaching? God is gracious and just in salvation and judgment. When God shows mercy on people who don't deserve it, he's gracious and just. And when he, and when he judges people who, do deserve, who deserve it, he is also gracious and just. You say gracious on those who, who, who uh, he judges? Yeah, let's see where, where that comes in. First of all, look at Romans 9, 14-16. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, is God unfair? That's the idea. Is God unfair? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows 
mercy. So, so the point is that, that, that salvation, and if you want to talk about the doctrine of election, the doctrine of election, it's based on God showing mercy. It's not based on anything that we will or that we do. Right? It's not based on him that wills or him that runs, but on God that shows mercy. So what is that peg and the violin string? Salvation is solely by grace. It's solely by grace. Now notice what he says in chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. And I want to take just a moment here because, because I believe that this gives us a little bit of help in understanding uh, what's going on in this passage. Paul is, is answering the um, anticipated objection that God is unjust to judge people. If God is sovereign, then how, why, how can he judge people for disobeying? Because if he's sovereign, then they couldn't have done anything differently anyway, so it can't really be their fault, so he can't judge them. He's answering that kind of an argument, okay? That kind of, a, of, a, of an objection, okay? And so he says, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, and, and notice here, what did God do with these people? He endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Okay, so what is God doing? He's enduring a certain group of people, and he's doing that so that he can do something else, which is what? So that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Okay, so God is going to show mercy, but he allows some people to keep going in their rebellion. Think about this. When, when did Adam earn the death penalty? When did he earn the death penalty? When could God have judged Adam and Eve eternally? The moment they sinned. But what did he do instead? He waited. And he waited. And he waited. And he waited. And he waited. Which I'm glad for, because that lets me get saved, right? Think of all the people that have been saved since Adam. If God judges Adam, then the whole human race is condemned and we're done, right? The story is over. Be, be the, it would be a pretty short Bible, right? Three chapters and we're done. Okay. The point is God endured with much long-suffering people who had rejected him and had been disobedient so that he would then be able to have mercy on those vessels of mercy. Now notice there's a difference here. Notice the vessels of wrath. The vessels of wrath were prepared for destruction. Now, an English teacher or a person of like interests, what is that? What um, what voice? Let's see, not voice. What is that verb? Is that active or passive? It's a passive verb. When you have a passive verb, it doesn't say who did it. Does it say who did that? Doesn't say who did it. Okay. Now, it's possible in Greek it could be a middle, which means that they prepared themselves. But even if it's just the passive, it doesn't say who did it, who prepared them. Okay? But notice what it says about the vessels of mercy. On the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So when it comes to salvation, who's doing the preparing? God is. 100% God. On the other hand, when it comes to those who are judged, those who do not get saved, who's doing the preparing? It doesn't say, and I believe that's because it's a mystery. God is sovereign, but man is what? Responsible. It's our fault, but that doesn't in any way take away God's sovereignty. It's a mystery. We don't know how that works. But the point is, when it comes to salvation, salvation is solely by what? Grace. And Paul will not budge an inch on that. Okay? Okay? 
But that's not the end of the story, right? That's just the first chapter of these three chapters. The second chapter says, deals with the fact that the rejection of the gospel by some confirms that salvation is through faith. That's really what's going on mainly in chapter 10. 9.32 through 10.21. The key teaching here is that humans are fully responsible for their rejection of the gospel. If you reject the gospel, you can't say God is sovereign and therefore I, I'm not responsible for my rejection of the gospel. And if you look at chapter 10, you go through that, what you'll see is that God is saying, no, no, they were these, these folks were seeking, Israel was seeking to be saved by keeping the law and meriting it, and they would not submit themselves to the righteousness which is of faith. And therefore, they missed it. Whereas the Gentiles, which weren't seeking righteousness, obtained righteousness because they received the gospel by faith. Then he goes on to show that the gospel was preached uh, widely and that they heard it and that they're accountable for the rejection of it. Humans are fully responsible for their rejection of the gospel. Key verses, uh, chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, number one, is God sovereign? Yes. How sovereign? 100%. And the sovereign God says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's an open invitation to anyone and everyone to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. Whosoever will may come and take of the water of life freely. Now you can't abandon that post, that anchor for the violin string either. You have to be firmly committed to that just as you're firmly committed to the, to the, to the grace of God. But then number four, and this is, the, this is basically chapter 11, the rejection of the gospel by some confirms that salvation is for God's glory. Now this is essential because when we're in the middle of being burdened for someone and we see that, that the rejection of the gospel is a great tragedy, and when we know that salvation is by grace alone, and when we see that salvation is through faith alone, sometimes we get so balled up in that when it deals with an individual person or a group of people and we should be concerned for them. The Bible teaches us to be concerned. But while we're concerned, we have to remember God has a bigger plan. There are more people involved than just us. You know, when God saved you, it wasn't just for you. <laughs> Did you know that? It's for all the people you would reach. And then all the people they would reach. And all the people they would reach. I, was, um, I, I, I really was humbled by this. I When... Uh, to realize, I was uh, years after uh, years after um, I got saved. I went out of the home, was out of the home, was in school, got saved, and would come back home and start and talk with my mom. And she said one day, she says, "You know, we uh, I named you David because David loved God, and I wanted my son to love God." See, and here I thought it was all about me. Maybe it wasn't about me here on Mother's Day. Maybe it was about my mom and her prayer, huh? Maybe you're not saved because you believed. I mean, sure, you believe. But maybe somebody prayed for you, right? And maybe it has something to do with what God's going to do through you or in your life, right? And how someone else might get saved. It's for the glory of God. The key teaching, God is so good, he's so powerful, and he's so wise that he turns tragedy into triumph. 
That's really what chapter 11 is about. Right now, there is an, in Israel, there's an election according to, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And that opened a door for the Gentiles to be saved. In an amazing way, that, that allowed the, the wild olive branch to be grafted in to the domestic olive plant in the sense that, that God had chosen one group of people for blessing and this whole different group of people came in and got the blessing and were grafted in. And then one day, but he's using the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that one day they will what? Be saved too. It's just an amazing thing that God is doing. Look at verses 31 and 32, or beginning in verse 30. For as you were, you were once, you Gentiles, Paul's talking to the Gentiles, the nations, okay? People who had been pagans, they did not know God. They were not God's people. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. At the end of the day, God has established it so that he would have mercy not only on the people that he chose as a nation, but on all the nations, and then he would redeem the people that he'd originally chosen and fulfill all of those promises. When, when we're talking to people about the Lord, we can't forget that the main issue is the glory of God. It's the glory of God in our obedience. It's the glory of God in, in their response. It's the glory of God in what he's doing in this world and his plan. God is fully righteous and he is working out his plan. Well, then we get to the end. And remember, the, the first point was that from a human standpoint, the first five verses of chapter 9, from a human standpoint, the rejection of the gospel by some is a, is a terrible tragedy. And it is a tragedy. But I want us to see something here. From the heavenly perspective, rejection of the gospel by some displays God's incomprehensible wisdom. After God, after Paul explains the plan of God and how he is working it out so that the gospel is the power of God, the salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and then how it makes it becomes available to all. Then notice what he says here in verses 33 through 11, 33 through 36. I'm sorry, God's ways are infinitely above our ways. God's ways are infinitely above our ways, and that's important to understand. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him, and through him, and to him, are all things to whom we be glory forever. Amen. So here Paul is saying, look, look at the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when, when, when we're tempted to be discouraged because things are not going right now, the way that we would like them to go. And when consequences come, and when we face disappointment or we face rejection, or when we pray and the answers don't seem to come, we have to remember that for of him and through him and to him are all things. And this is redounding to the glory of God. The story's not over yet. What God has done and is doing and will do will be fully revealed one day. But we only see a tiny piece of it and we only see through a glass as in a glass darkly. As in a, as in a, a 
lousy mirror, <laughs> right? Where it's dark and vague. But one day we'll see face to face and we will know. So then how should we respond to these three chapters? I mean, I recommend, I really encourage you to read through these. I encourage you when you run across individual verses that cause difficulty, look at them in their context, in the context of the chapter that they're in and in the context of the entire section that they're in. And I think they'll make more sense to you. But what, how should we respond to this reality? Well, first of all, we should sincerely care about the state of the lost. We should sincerely care about the state of the lost for God, because of God's glory and because of their good. For God's glory, for their, we should care that people are lost. It should matter to us. It should bother us that people aren't saved. Therefore, we should pray and preach. Right? Pray because salvation is solely by grace. Preach because salvation is solely through faith. We have to both pray and preach. We can't just preach and we can't just pray. We have to do both. We should be thankful that salvation is based solely on the grace of God. Are you thankful? Are you thankful you didn't, you didn't do anything to deserve this? Are you thankful? Like, oh, wow, what a blessing to know that I am accepted by God, by the grace of God alone, because God's grace will never change. I'm variable, right? Sometimes I'm really on fire for the Lord, and then, you know, hey, what's for lunch? Is that you? We should be mindful of our responsibility to tell and their responsibility to believe. It's not our responsibility to believe for people. It's not our responsibility to twist their arms. We can't make anyone believe. We have to pray because God is sovereign and gracious. And we have to preach because people are responsible. But at the end of the day, we are not the ones that make it happen. We don't have to take that responsibility on ourselves. I think one thing that inhibits our witness is the fear we're just going to blow it, we're going to mess up, as if, we did, as if doing everything right would guarantee that it would work. <laughs> right? Right? We have the responsibility to tell. They have the responsibility to believe. And then we should trust God that he knows what he's doing. <laughs> Do you trust God that he, that he... You believe that God knows what he's doing? <laughs> right? God has a plan and God is working his plan and it's going to work out as he sees fit. And then finally, we should glorify God for his infinite sovereignty, goodness, and wisdom. Many things in these chapters are difficult. They're involved. They're, they're theological arguments about many things. But I think if we take away these messages from this text, it will do a great work in our hearts and be a blessing to us and also be a blessing through us to other people. Father.